Um, you might not be aware of it, <clears throat> um, but Christianity is in the midst of a civil war. <laughs> and, and, and I know your head's going to a lot of the possible wars that the church has been fighting over the centuries, um, but, but I'm not going to be talking about worship wars. I'm not going to be talking about gender wars. I'm not going to be talking about a, any supposed war on science or, or really any of the modern church issues that we all just get so riled up about that we think is the thing, right? And not the fact that Jesus died for us. That, that's the thing. Um, we get so wrapped up in these, and many of them are, they're, 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 a lot of them are procedural issues, right? Um, what does our church believe the right way and the biblical way to do this, that, or the other thing? You know, procedural, really. And, and then the other issues that we, we go to war on are um, really non-essentials, they're the non-essentials. I love the Nazarene church. We, you can believe some pretty out there things. As long as you stick with Jesus and the blood of Jesus, you're, you're good with us, right? I've, I've talked to a couple of you, and, and, and you got some pretty, out, some really amazing ideas. That's the way I'll put that. Um, but this, this issue that I'm talking about has been around for 2,000 years, right? This is Christianity 1.0, like the beta version, right? The very, 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 very beginning of everything. And this issue really goes to the very heart of the gospel, and again, this has been an issue since literally day one right up to this very, very moment. The Apostle Paul spells it out nicely um, in his letter to the Christians in the city of Rome. This is verse 1 and verse 15, so they don't go together here. Verse 1 says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Um, the idea is the more we sin, well, the more God forgives and he loves to forgive. So, hey, let's just sin a whole bunch and that'll make God really happy because he gets to forgive a whole bunch. And, and, and Paul, if, if you read this passage, he's like, are you not? He didn't, you know, paraphrases. Um, no, heavens, no. I can't remember what he says, but basically, no, 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 don't go there. Or, or verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace? Right? The message version has it. So since we're out from under the old tyranny of the old law, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we just do anything that comes to mind? Right? And again, in verse 15, Paul's like, no, no, don't go. That, that, that's, that's crazy. Don't, no, 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 that's not, not. Now, the thing is, here, here's what, 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 what got his audience to ask these, these questions. Um, he had just gone on to great length explaining the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, right? That, that we're forgiven. We're forgiven. Um, and there's no need to fear punishment for our sins anymore, right? Paul's very excited about presenting this. This is the good news, Jesus took care of everything on the cross. And so now everybody's kind of asking, well, so um, what do we do with all the old rules we used to have? I mean, how strictly, which one should we, you know? And, and, and it just is this big, big question, uh, rules, penalties, even basic morality, or do we just toss it all in, love each other, and do whatever we please because we're all going to get forgiven anyway? Is, is, is that what Jesus was saying? Was that what he was talking about? Because this is the way they came away from it. Like, oh, right. We are now free to do anything we want. And God will cover it. Right? There's no right or wrong anymore. Whoa. And this is kind of what they were driving at, right? So, so right and wrong are gone. We don't have to condemn, condone, or anything. Just everybody do, do what they want. Basically, it comes down to this. Um, for then and today... And I think for the church and for individual Christians, do we condone or do we condemn? What are we known for? And, and churches have this reputation. Oh, that's a condoning church. They let anybody in. <laughs> oh, that's a condemning church. 
They won't even let you in because you don't dress right, you don't act right, you don't drive the right, I mean, the whole nine yards. You know there are different kinds of churches, and they lean in one direction or the other, right? A condoning, loving, oh, we just love everybody. So the question is, do we wink at sin or do we look down our nose at sin? <laughs> that, that's really, really the question. Um, and, and again, it was an issue right from the start, and it remains an issue today. Jesus loves me so much, and he's okay if I sleep around because he loves me, and he wants to forgive me. Not sure that's very accurate, but, you know, <laughs> or, and that's the condoning or the condemning, right? Don't let them ruin our fellowship. Don't let them soil our fellowship, right? We need to have a sign right outside, boot them until they behave. <laughs> Don't let them back in until they're properly shamed and they've mended their ways. Um, we can go to condoning. I remember listening to a pastor. He's a big-name pastor now. Back in 96, when I first heard him at a convention, he was a youth pastor, like a nobody, sorry. Um, and he's cussing, and, he, and, and the room is filled with all these youth pastors who are trying to be really good youth pastors, and he's up there dropping them the F-bomb, and, I mean, and, and people are getting up and walking out, so he finally addresses the situation. I think he set this all up. He says, how can we speak into a world when we don't speak their language? And I remember thinking, I, I don't know about that, but hey, you know, free, I, I'm not going to call you on it. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Right? Or, or again, that, that's condoning. Or um, even condoning, we have this, this, this theology that's, that's very, very powerful and has done amazing things. Um, and the way I'm going to explain it very quickly here, don't, don't let me broad brush it too much. Um, there's something called liberation theology and this idea that we can go into poverty-stricken nations and we can say, don't steal, don't steal, um, when in fact, if they don't steal, they will die. And then behind that whole scene is a government that has brought on this situation with insane levels of in corruption and, and pride and, you know. So, so there's that. And I, what do we do about that? When, yeah. Or condemning the myopic Christian, right? Mature believers never disobey the Spirit or Scripture. <laughs> church discipline is what we need. I know a church very well, and a pastor found out that one of his congregants had had an affair. I don't know what was in this guy's head, but he decided the only way that this guy can move forward is if he makes him stand up in front of the congregation and tell the congregation exactly what he did. Lo and behold, when that long afterwards that at that very moment, the pastor was in the midst of an adulterous affair. Right, so, we, so to, to condemn or condone, I mean, both of them get sticky, both of them have their draw, both, I mean, where, where do we as the church land? I mean, we sing some beautiful songs today about how God treats us, where he lands when we are a mess, right? How do we, how do we, how do we pull that off, pull that off ourselves? Um, in terms of our message this morning, where is hope found? Is it in telling people that, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, we all sinned, no big deal, Right? Is hope found when we no longer acknowledge sin? We just wink at it? Or worse, or worse, we all band together. I know you all have done this in school. We all band together and we say, let's all do this. What can the teacher do? She can't punish all of us, right? Anybody ever gone there? You ever had that experience? No? Just me? Oh, okay, good. Good. thought I was the worst person in the world here. Um, right? Uh, fact of the matter is the teacher can punish it, as we all found out. The teacher can, can do that. Story of Babel. This is the story of Babel, right? God told them to go and make a name for himself, and they said, yeah, we're going to build a tower and make a name for ourselves, right? 
Or, or which, you know, if that doesn't offer hope, this is where we go next. Um, we create a they, right? The first step is we're all in this together so we can't point fingers. The second way to do this is draw a line in the sand and make sure we got an us and a them, right? They're sinners and they need to be ashamed, right? Before they get readmitted, we got to make sure, right? So is hope found when we band together and it's a we thing, or is hope found when we create a scapegoat, kind of take the focus off of us, focus on that horrible person? It appears to many Christians that these are the only two options. That's the crazy thing. We either condone, hey, I want to be that church, I want to go to that church because they never mention sin, or we condemn, hey, I want to go to that church, I want to be a part of that church because they don't let sin in the door. Even when both of these offer only death. Let me say that again. Both of these choices, they offer only death. Or at the very least, the very best, the possibility of never being able to change without the possibility of ever being able to change. Watch this. We can say two things. We can unlovingly condone and let their sin execute judgment. Right? I, I love you, and I see what you're doing is destroying you and everyone around you, but I'm not going to say anything. Is that love? Or is that enabling death? Or, or we ungraciously condemn them, execute judgment ourselves, and I'll tell you what, we ungraciously, that's the big word there, that's the one I should have highlighted. We tend to be very ungracious when we get into that finger-pointing part of Christianity, Right? We just just do. But might Jesus offer a third way, a way that doesn't lead to death but leads to life, leads to life, and it doesn't condone or condemn which only lead to death? In chapter 8 of John's gospel, we do. We have the way. I'm going to show you this morning. It's amazing. It goes by many titles, but the most well done, most well known, um, which is tragic um, because the most well-known title for one I want to share with you this morning misses the point entirely. In fact, it draws you away from why John included this in his gospel in the first place. Um, this is in John chapter 8. We're going to look at this morning. It's the woman caught in adultery, right? So if you've got Bibles, you like to kind of follow along, try to follow along, good luck. Um, that's where we're going to be. Verse, verse, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus had arrived at the temple early in the day. Uh, people gathered to hear him, and then this happens. Right? It just, it just gets, it gets ugly. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Understand, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees are the ones that followed all the law, and the teachers of the law are ones that wrote all the law. Right? You have written law that's in the law of Moses, it's in your Bibles, you can check them out, mostly Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, but you, they also had what was called the oral law, in which these, these teachers of the law, these scribes, would take the written law that you all can see in your Bibles, and they wrote out these extensions, right? Every conceivable, you've heard all this before, every conceivable way you could break that law or keep it to the point where there are, the oral law was just like huge. Huge, 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 right? So we got the teachers and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they brought in a woman. They, John records it like this, verses 3 and 4, chapter 8 of John. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act. Let your imaginations run wild for just a moment and then bring it back in, all right? Caught in the act of adultery. Now, I want you to notice something very quickly. The man is missing. You don't commit adultery all by yourself. My dad used to say it takes two to tango. <laughs> and it takes two to do a lot of things, apparently. Um, the man was not brought. 
This is significant. This is, this is huge. The oral law demanded that both parties be brought to justice. The written law demanded that the woman get stoned or strangled, depending on her marital status. It's horrible. Um, but the oral law demanded that both parties be brought to justice, and if only one party was brought, then that was a violation of the law. Bam! Violation of the law. Right there. Because very clear, they cared nothing for true righteousness, right? It was very evident they were using this woman. They were setting her up for their own purposes, right? They claim that the woman was caught in adultery, the very act, and yet they don't bring the guilty man before Jesus. And again, it's possible that the guilty man was one of the Pharisees, one of their own, somebody that they contracted out, hey, go, you know, whatever. We, we don't know. It's not, not included. Continue reading in verse 5 and 6. In the law of Moses... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. That's in the the written law, in your Bibles. Now, what do you say, Jesus? And they were using this, and this is John's commentary, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So this isn't about adultery. Any of you make this lesson about adultery, just stop it right now. It's not about adultery. It's not about sexual sin. That's not what this passage is about at all. At all. They just got a hot-button topic that they knew they could get some traction with, and they're going to trap Jesus. That's the purpose of this whole episode. Not that, although this can be drawn from this, but this is not the point of the lesson, that grace given as grace received, right? We, we got this idea going out that the whole point of this parable, this story, this incident, is that we can't go out and judge anybody because, right, are you sinless? Well, the Bible says, Romans 3.23, nobody... <laughs> like, wow, we're kind of stuck now. This was a trap being set by Jesus, and this woman was the bait. Now, not entirely a side note here. Did they really execute people for adultery in Israel? Right? We, we build this up like every Friday afternoon. Hey, kids, let's go out and watch somebody get stoned to death, right? Because it happens every Friday afternoon, and it, Really not the case, not the case at all. Um, It is true that adultery was a capital offense under Jewish law, but the rules for evidence, and this is really important here, the rules for evidence in capital cases were extremely strict. The actual act had to be observed by multiple witnesses. Let your imagination run, all right? Who agree exactly in their testimony. And again, this is going to come back and bite the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the rear end because Jesus is going to come and, and Perry Mason them, right? I don't know. Law and order. I don't, I don't know what you all watch these days. I love Perry Mason. Um, so as a practical matter, virtually nobody was executed for adultery. It was, a, it was an incredibly private sin. You, right? Anyway. Right? So, so what was the trap? The trap was this. If Jesus condones what the woman does, he subverts the law of Moses. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. But if he condemns her, he has two issues, one of which I think has been played, overplayed, and I'll explain the other one. The overplayed one is that he was, they were trying to get him set up uh, in trouble with the Roman authorities for taking charge of capital offenses. Jesus isn't an official. He's not the Sanhedrin. He can't pronounce. He he doesn't have that kind of power. I mean, he does, but he doesn't, right? He does up there, but not down here. Um, The real issue, I think, the real issue for Jesus was the people, right? If he comes down and says, yes, stone her to death, his whole reputation goes out the window in a second, Right? He's this loving guy who's trying to portray God as he truly is, and in this one act, he could throw it all away, and the people would turn against him because they knew 
exactly what happened because there was a crowd there. They knew the game. They knew the trap. They were sitting there watching. They were fully aware of what was going on with this situation. And the Pharisees would love nothing more than for the people to hate nice guy Jesus. Pharisees, like, let's get back to law and order. <laughs> Jesus guy is soft on crime. But Jesus has a third way. Unlike the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he's not mean-spirited, and he's not prideful. Right? We read last week, he's gentle, and he's humble of heart. Verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And I, again, lots of thoughts, lots of opinions about what Jesus must have been writing. Uh, maybe he was doodling, you know, letting the Pharisees think about what they were doing. Right? Kind of let it sink in, the heat of the moment. You, you rushed her here. Everybody's all, and now just... Are you sure you want to go through with this? That's been played up quite a bit. It could have been. But whatever it was, it doesn't seem at this point that it alarmed anybody. It didn't alarm anybody, any of the Pharisees, anybody, the teachers of the law, anything like that. Or at least, or at least what he was about to do, the Perry Mason he was about to pull on them, they didn't notice yet. They weren't, they weren't legal eagles. They, they just, they, not like Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus stands. <clears throat> And says something that can easily be taken out of context and does all sorts of damage in our world today. Verse 7 says this, when they kept on questioning him, right? So he gave them time, but they just, they weren't going to lose their head of steam, right? They weren't going to take a breather, even though Jesus was giving them an opportunity to take a breather, like he's totally ignoring them. Have you ever had somebody ignore you when you're riled up <laughs> and they're just like, <laughs> my dads have this horrible reputation we argue very reasonably. <laughs> we don't allow emotion in our arguments. <laughs> and our daughter throws something at us. Um, taken out of context, when, he, when he, they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, taken out of context, this verse has been and continues to be used for gross, gross sin. All sorts of abuse. It's like, we're all bad, so don't you dare point a finger at me. I'm not as bad as you think. At best, again, at best, right? This is the interpretation of this. We all sin, and sin isn't that big a deal, so let's not make a big issue of it. Now, if that's true, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus would have caught on to this immediately. This was not what Jesus was about. This was not a condoning exercise. Just make sure you're all aware of that. This was not an exercise in forgiveness yet, right? Just, just hold on. And again, at worst, it's no one is without sin, so nobody condemn anyone but Jesus. Right? So we take that phrase, we take that, let any one of you who is without sin and be the first to throw a stone at her, we take that and we just, we, we destroy it. We, we pervert it so badly. Bill Clinton tried to use this. Do you remember his trial? This was his defense. Right? We all sin. It's not that big a deal. Don't, don't be all pointing your finger at me. You all do this kind of thing. It's like, no, it didn't work for him. It's not going to work for us. You cannot use the cast the first stone as a defense for sin. You cannot use the cast the first stone as your defense for your continued sin. You, you just can't do that. I mean, consider Paul. Well, con consider the, the New Testament. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, Paul wrote that in Romans, right? And, and, and then we, we look at all his letters. I mean, he has no hesitation in judging a brother who's living in open sin, and he rebuked those who didn't say anything. 
So condemn, condone, what's he doing? What's he doing here? Right? He would, he would withdraw his fellowship from blasphemers and he would expose others for teaching false theology. One does not have to be without sin to point out sin. Preachers, I'll tell you that, every preacher I know, we've had to get over that hump. And that's a big hump to get over. Well, I can't preach on that. I still struggle with it. Well, I can't preach on that. I, I, I yelled at somebody yesterday. Well, I can't preach. I, pretty soon we can't preach on anything. And, right? That, that's, not, that's not what Jesus was about in this passage. Not what Jesus was doing. All right? There's a difference between recognizing sin and condemning sin. Recognizing and calling a sin sinful behavior or sinful behavior a sin, that doesn't equal judgment. But condemning someone, that, that's judgment. That's judgment. And, and once again, what hope is there in minimizing sin and pretending it doesn't exist? We're literally just saying, I don't care enough about you to point out the fact that you're destroying yourself. I don't really care. So he's not minimizing sin and he's not pretending that it doesn't exist. And if that's the case, then <laughs> why did he have to die? So here's what's at stake with Jesus' question. Watch this. There is, and, and I've called it the ceremony of accusation. There's no such term. I just wrote it up there. But there, is a, there was a ceremony in Jewish tradition, this, right? And the idea is if you were bringing charges against somebody, there was a, a, literally a ceremony, right? The ceremony. Here's the ceremony um, for adultery, if you're going to bring that charge. <clears throat> Both the man and the woman were to be brought to the temple gate, and there was a particular gate that they went to, and that's where they were accused, <clears throat> right? Basically, um, write the names of the man and the woman. So already we know that this is a kangaroo court, right? You know that term. You know that term. They've already violated the one law that they thought nobody would notice because it's the oral law that's like, everybody knows the written law because there's only 10 of them. But the oral law, there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And you get the impression that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law figured, ah, they'll never notice. They'll never, they'll never notice. Um, but they have already violated rule number one. The second part, they write out the law broken on the temple floor. Or they were to write it out anywhere that's not permanent, and more often than not, it was on the temple floor. So you have some pictures in art that Jesus is at the entrance of the temple, and he's writing at the entrance of the temple something. This is just one possibility, by the way. <clears throat> There's a lot of possibilities for what he wrote. And the fact of the matter is, John doesn't tell us what he wrote, so maybe this is just a pointless exercise. But I'm going to continue. Um, so the second one, you write out the law broken on the temple floor. Um, and again, it's possible that this is the first time that Jesus stoops and writes in the dust. And then when he stands and challenges someone to cast the first stone, they suddenly realize that if the trial proceeds, they're going to be found in violation. Because Jesus is going to say, where's the man? Okay, so who brought the woman in? Right? Now you're in trouble because you're in violation of the law. Or, number three, this is the last step, you write out the names of the accusers and the witnesses. This is like entering the names into the record kind of thing going on. So if Jesus gets around to recording the names of the accusers, thus forcing their hand, they're in deep trouble, right? They had already violated part one of the ceremony, and they were about to violate part three, producing false witnesses. Like, they got, Jesus outmaneuvered them. It's just what, that's what happened. The passage continues. Watch this. Verses 8 and 9. It says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, at this, and I, in my mind, at this point, he's, he's, he's finishing up the law that's being broken, and he's about to start recording the names. And everybody there knows, oh, crud. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Um, again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground, at this, those who heard 
what he had said, began to run away, uh, away, go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left because the older ones are more experienced in the law. They, they, saw, they saw the Perry Mason thing like, oh, man, this guy's sharp. Um, until only Jesus was left and the woman was left standing there with him. Again, they all slip away, the oldest and the wisest first, I think, until only Jesus and the woman are left. Verse 10 and 11, the G- Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Well, no one, sir. Now, understand something. This is, let me paraphrase Jesus. Has no one condemned you? Basically, we've got to remember, to officially launch an investigation, witnesses had to be produced, and, and their names had to be entered into the court records, you know, written down. The Pharisees realize that they can't be guilty if they don't step forward and throw the first stone. That's the first thing that dawns on them. Or if they're gone by the time he gets to recording the names, then they're safe also. Because then it's a mistrial, right? If the accusing party doesn't show up, I don't know, you guys know a little more legalities than me. If the accusing party doesn't show up, what's the court, what's the judge do? Case dismissed. Does nobody bring a charge against you? That's what Jesus is doing. It's like, what, what, what? kind of the case fell apart there, didn't it, ma'am? Yeah, it kind of did. Everything, everything kind of just, just fell apart. But what about the woman caught in adultery? She was caught in adultery. We find this out. So is Jesus going to condone her? Is he going to wink at it? What's he going to do? There is a weird, weird tradition and for the life of me, I cannot remember. It, it's an extra-Christian tradition. It's outside of Christianity. And I can't remember what group. But there is this group that believes that once everybody left, Jesus picked up rocks and stoned her because he was the only one that could condemn because he's perfect. And he kills her. I don't like that ending of the story. That, that doesn't work for me. I, again, there's your homework. Figure out where I found that one. Um, This was truly a damaging sin. So again, what was Jesus going to do about it? He says this, Then neither do I condemn you, he declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Basically, I wasn't there, so I certainly can't condemn you. If, we're, if, we're, if, he, if he's still talking the legality of what this case represents, I wasn't there, so I, I can't be one of the people. I will not be a false witness. But listen, everyone in town knows what you do. And I can't, in clear conscience, I, I can't in all honesty, I can't be okay with this. You, you know that, right? And he's talking, I mean, they, they understand each other. They understand each other. Jesus can't just whitewash this and pretend it didn't exist, didn't happen. Nope, nope, no, nothing like that. I can condone you, what you're doing, or I can condemn you. You, you watch the power I have. These people give me crazy power. But I'm not going to do either. I'm not going to condone what you did, and I'm not going to condemn what you did. I'm not going to do either. Instead, I'm going to tell you, go now and leave your life of sin. Can I just tell you, if anybody else had said that to me, I would say, pie in the sky, dreamer. What if I just will it, and it'll happen? If I get enough self-help books from the library, and, and I can finally stop sinning? I mean, is, is that, that's the deal. Right? If anybody else had said this, it would have been crazy talk. But Jesus knew with her spirit in him, in her, right, she could really leave her life of sin. It could happen. She could become holy. 
She could become Christ-like. Nobody else believed it. They had already condemned her to death, perpetual death. She can never change. She's evil. She's shame, shame. Jesus is like, no, no. When I fill her with perfect love, you just watch. You just watch. So here's what Jesus offers when the world offers nothing but dead-end solutions. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So why did the Apostle John include this incident? If it wasn't necessarily completely entirely about extending grace and forgiveness because Jesus extended grace and forgiveness to a prostitute that, or an adulteress, <laughs> got to be careful there, um, why did he include the incident if that's really not what it's about? If this isn't the lesson, what was it? This is what John is doing. By contrast, he's shown us what Jesus has to offer in terms of hope, and he's comparing it to what the world offers in terms of hope. Oh, you're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. Nobody will get hurt. Or even the church world, like condemn, bad, 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 bad. Um, he's comparing what the church and what the world is offering the people, and then what does Jesus offer us? Here's what the world and the legalistic religion have to offer in terms of hope. The yoke and the burden of the world, it offers no hope or life because it condones sin. Just go in a dark corner and die by yourselves. Don't bother anybody in the process, Right? And at the same time, the yoke and the burden of the church can tend to offer no hope or life because we condemn. We condemn and we shame and we point. And then John shows us what Jesus has to offer. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Have you ever had a mean-spirited boss? Have you ever had a mean-spirited boss or maybe a prideful boss? And you quickly come to the conclusion that they do not care about you. They will condemn or condone your actions at the flip of a hat. And it will have nothing to do with you. It will all, all be for their gain and glory, right? You are a puppet and a pawn to prideful, mean-spirited people. This was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is what John was trying to point out. But Jesus is different. And here's the, here's the difference. He's gentle and he's humble of heart. Australian theologian and Bible scholar John Painter, he draws attention to something critical that's easily missed in this passage. The pronouncement of forgiveness is stated first and is not made a conditional on the turn from sin. Right? Read the passage again. Rather, the turning from sin seems to flow from the experience of being forgiven. You ever been called out by somebody you don't like and you know they don't like you? You ever had that situation? My first reaction, total defense. You're wrong and you're an idiot. <laughs> Settled that one. But when somebody calls you out and you know they love you and you love them, there's somebody in this congregation that has called me out many times and they did so recently. And I know they love me and I love them and I just love the fact that they keep doing this. They graciously point things out that I'm not doing right. But I love them for it. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. 
The difference is correcting wrong starts with forgiveness, not rebuke. When correction starts with forgiveness, there's hope. There's always hope. You think about, let me, I'm going to conclude here, the, the, the Matthew party in, in the book of Matthew. This is actually Matthew writing. He's writing about the time that Jesus came to his house and, and, and had dinner with all his tax collector friends. Well, they're all sitting there having dinner, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws show up and, and, and show up right outside the window. Apparently, they can hear the whole conversation, and they're telling Jesus' followers, how come Jesus is hanging out with all these losers? And, yeah, and, yeah, and, and Jesus is like, well, they're losers, but, you know, I, you know blah, 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 blah. and, and you, you, you just got to figure out, you got to wonder, and Matthew and his buddies are sitting there saying, hey, those guys out there, they're calling us losers. <laughs> And you know what happens next. The guy next to Matthew says, well, we are. We're pretty bad people. But Jesus is so nice about it. He never makes us feel bad. He draws us upwards. I'll tell you what, buddy, I don't want to tax collect anymore. And because it's because of this Jesus guy. He's just, he's so nice. And he's so gentle. And he's humble. He's not prideful. And he's not mean-spirited. I can get behind that. So that's a lesson for all of us this morning. I want to close with a word of warning. This is kind of the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know if you recognize that. The woman easily identified as the younger son. We're the older son in this story. We're the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I just want, as, as I've been preaching, I can't help but think that in your minds, you've come up, well, Pastor Jerry, what about this situation? You can't, you can't, what about this one? I would suggest this morning that Jesus, within this incident, as he stoops on the ground, he's given us all time to just put a break on it. It's very easy. Like, oh, those Pharisees, they're horrible. Oh, I hate them. They're us. We're the Pharisees. See, there's two broken parties in this story here. There's the woman, but there's also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They have given everything to love God and love the law. They have given up everything. They have sacrificed everything. And now apparently God says, yeah, not needed. They're wounded. And I know church people can feel very, very wounded. I have followed every rule, just like the older son and the prodigal, son of the prodigal, whatever that one is. I followed every rule, everything in God's Everything I have is for you. All you have to do is ask. Don't, don't go after. Don't be mean-spirited. Be, be humble. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much that we don't have, you don't call us to condemn, but we don't have to condone, but we can lead people into a whole new existence, a, bre- a restart, new creation, Everything they did in the past, we can, we, can just, we can dump it. We don't have to condemn or condone as followers of Jesus Christ. In our love, we can offer people new life. Father, help us to thread that needle because it's so easy to come off as ungraciously condemning or Sometimes we just want to be so nice that we're really unlovingly condoning. Father, help us find the heart of the person suffering. Help us to be humble.
humble of heart and gentle. Um, Father, let us not yoke people with a heavy burden that you've already carried to the cross and you laid it down and, and Father, we can lay it down too. Thank you, Father, for everything you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the Spirit guiding us. And Father, thank you for your Son through whom all this happened and through whom we, we see how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act. So, Father, again, thank you for today and everything that's still going to happen. There's a lot of, a lot of day left. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Your son's name I pray. Amen.